netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the FX Podcast. I'm John Montgomery. We've got a bit of a different take on our podcast this episode, but it's definitely in the wheelhouse of what we cover here at FX Guide. Instead of focusing on a new release of some content like a TV show or movie or software, our guest for this ep is Ian Spriggs, a 3D portrait artist with years of experience in the industry. Now, you may already know of Ian's work, but if not, I really suggest checking out his website before you listen to this podcast or as you're listening now. Head on over to iansprigs.com. That's I-A-N-S-P-R-I-G-G-S.com. The two G's is a key point. We'll have a link in the article and also in the description of this podcast in your favorite podcast app. It's really incredibly brilliant work, and the images are they're just so compelling. Um, in the podcast, the guys cover both the creative work as well as the technical aspects of his portraits, and I think you'll really enjoy the discussion as I did. So after my long introduction last episode for Mike's 1000th podcast, I'll keep this one short, and let's cross to the interview now. So, Ian, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Hey, um, I just am super keen to have you on the FX Guide because, uh, as I'm sure you know, I've admired your work for like a really long time. And also because it's really a um, a particular uh, point of art and technology that I find just fascinating. Do you consider yourself first and foremost, an artist, or do you consider yourself an artist with a heavy kind of nod to the technology that's required? How do you sort of see yourself in that relationship? Uh, you know, say everybody who works with me, they realize I'm a strictly, mostly an artist. I consider myself more an artist than anything else. I just was lucky enough to find the pathway which led me to learn some technology and, and use those tools to help promote my arts. Because your area of digital portraiture is not just portraiture, which of course has a huge tradition. In fact, in my country, the most um, prestigious art award of the entire year is the Archibald, which is just a portrait award, right? But so, so your it, it's not just a, it's digital portraiture, which is both interesting and different, I think. Or do you not see it that way? I see it as being very. It's all, there's a lot of similarities. I mean. The human subject is the number one subject in all of arts. So having a subject and like me building on top of what has been done prior, like like a lot of my work is based on the master's work. So I do reference a lot of that stuff, but being digital is taking what has been done before, but shedding a new light onto it. So seeing it in a new, different way. You're clearly producing, um, in some respects, a digital still image, but I've also seen you post your work where the camera like tracks around it though the character isn't animating what is the way that you want people to appreciate these pieces when they're finished how do you like to present them and have them understood by an audience ideally i actually like people not to think of it as a technical achievement i know my work because it's the uncanny valley is a huge thing in digital the digital realm a lot of people see my work and like wow that looks like a photograph and it's like, that's not at all my intention or my goal. My goal is to actually just show you the subjects. The be like, hey, like, there's a portrait of my friend and you feel as if you know them. Like, so be like, hey, a nice lighting, nice atmosphere, nice mood of the piece. I feel like I, I understand this human being. 
So I'd rather people actually focus on that element of things rather than like, hey, look, the skin shader looks amazing, but the pores and details is like, that stuff doesn't really matter to me. So uh, I've been using 2D mostly because it's just, that's my workflow. I mean, rigging and animation is not really my strong suit, so I've not really branched out to that just yet, but I do have it on the horizon. Yeah, the thing is, it isn't just that it looks like the person. This, if we can unpack that for a second, like clearly it has to be that person. Like, so if we can use a mutual friend, uh, Chris. So Crick Nichols, yep. that's Chris to me, right? I know Chris, I see Chris in your work. I, and I think that that's one aspect of it. Like it is not just a digital human, it's that particular person coming through. But then the second thing is, we are influenced by the fact that it was made by a person. Like if that mm -hmm. same image was produced and it was just uh, a photograph, or for that matter, even a uh, diffusion model kind of, um, or some kind of generative AI GAN that produced it. It matters to me that you made it as a person. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk to that, because it's both the humanity of the individual, but your humanity through the work. Yeah, so the way I see it is like every portrait is almost like there's two portraits. In it. So like, the, for example, the Chris uh, Nichols portrait, it's not just the technical achievement, like he's posing in a way where he's like, he's thinking, he's looking at you. Uh, it's kind of a reflection of who he, he is, but it's also, I'm showing you who he is through my eyes. So you're seeing in the way I, how I see these people. And so I think it's a lot clearer for you to understand who I am when you see my work as a collection rather than just individually. Because as a collection, if you go through all of my works, you can actually see I started out creating portraits of my family, and then I started a job at Oat Studios, and then I started doing a whole bunch of portraits of my friends at Oat Studios. And then I uh, did a whole bunch of portraits of my girlfriend's friends. And then I just, it's kind of like a journey of my life of sections. So in fact, you once said that your portraits are actually a portraiture of you told in multiple kind of frames, which I thought was a really interesting concept. Yeah, I mean, if you look at them all, it's, it's basically my life journey for the last, uh, what, eight, eight or nine years. So you can see where I've been, who my friends are, who's inspired me. I got... I pick people of importance to me. I don't just pick some random people who I don't know. I'm, I usually pick people like, hey, this person has influenced me in some capacity, whether it's a family member or a friend who's been there or somebody I'm inspired by. I, I'd like to assess some technical aspects in a bit, but if we can just stick with the artistic aspects before we get to anything technical. Mm -hmm. I'm Also, you're making obviously very deliberate choices in composition in lighting in everything but i mean in the case of let's chris we'll start with chris you you have a very distinctive hand thing with chris's portrait his hand is up to his face which i'm not familiar well okay that's not true i think in a recent one you did um you did another hand on a face uh was it eddie one of the ones that i know you did recently but generally it was a quite an unusual hand uh positioning where did that come from and why did you make that decision? Are you very explicit in your thinking about why you made that decision or did it just kind of seem right at the time? No, I, so a lot of my work is based on like, uh, so I usually have some sort of reference. So usually I've been referencing like art history, like Rembrandt or Caravaggio. But for Chris Nichols, he's kind of like an intellect. He does podcasts. He's always like engaging and learning. And the only person which I can remind me of is Steve Jobs. And there's a portrait of Steve Jobs with his hand on his chin. I'm like, what would be an equivalent like that for Chris Nichols? And so for Chris Nichols, every time 
you talk to him, it's almost like he listens to you. He's not wanting to talk to you and tell you his story. He wants to hear your story. So I've kind of gone like thinking, looking at you, waiting for you to tell him your story. So he's kind of thinking with his hand up his, on his head. So there's also an, another layer, as you alluded to a moment ago, with the uh, grandmasters and the tradition of portraiture, because hands in shot was more than just a framing choice. It used to be a uh, denotion or uh, did, used to denote wealth and influence, right? Can you talk to that point? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, a lot of uh, paintings back in the past, they would have, if you were like pretty wealthy, you just have a portrait of your bust in your head. But if you're extremely wealthy, you could start affording hand, hands because hands would take time and effort to paint. So sometimes they'll take as long as a face. So if you have like two hands in a painting, it means that you are extraordinarily wealthy and you can afford those two hands. So in a way, they're done as a, like a status symbol. You know, like, hey, look how amazing I am. Not only can I afford a portrait, I can afford a, afford a portrait with two hands in it. So I'm taking that Neil's portrait, Neil Blomkamp, the director's portrait, was a very deliberate hands front of front and center yeah. kind of portrait. Yeah, yeah. So Neil Blomkamp, I worked with him at Oat Studios. Uh, so when I asked him to do his portrait, I realized it's got to be something which are, which is a high status because he's one of the top directors, in my opinion, out there. So his hands are basically together on his knee, front and center, almost like larger than his head is, just to say like, hey, this is the status I hold. So I'm sure a lot of people discuss with you uh, lighting, and and I and I'd be remiss if I didn't. So I want to discuss that. But but if we could use it, I mean, obviously lighting is critical, and and we know that lighting changes the character of the face, the quality of the light. There's a lot of things there. And I know that you yourself have studied a lot of sort of cinematography as much as portraiture. But but if we can pick your own portrait for a second, your portrait that which was done like 2019, I'm thinking, um, 2020, right? You've got oh, a exactly. bright light above your head. It's almost a halo. Could you talk to the lighting on your own portrait and what were you trying to say with that? I mean, apart from obviously the illumination of the subject. So when I talk about that portrait, I actually like to compare it to my first self portrait. So the first self portrait I did, it was like the Rembrandt, it was like a Rembrandt lighting. I was just starting out trying to figure out how to be inspired, like where my reference comes from. So I based Rembrandt style lighting to begin with. And so I just kept it nice and simple. But as I kept on, like five, six years later, I'm like I started discovering myself a little bit more, and I realized it's like portraiture was the thing I really wanted to do. Like that, that's who I am. I, I'm a portrait artist. When I did my first self portraits, I was unsure. You can tell by the pose and everything about it feels like I feel insecure. My second self portrait, I'm like confident. I'm like, no, this is this is who I am. This is what I do. It's almost like I'm holding a light up facing you straight on, saying I'm a portrait artist. There's a lot more confidence. And so holding that light up in front of me is more of like a, it's like to show more strength, like more like straight on, not, not to the side, just like straight on. I'm, I'm going to tackle portraiture head on, and this is what I'm going to do moving forward. So on that second self-portrait, the one with the light over your head, did you conceptualize that before you started, or did you find that when you'd got a, good model of yourself and then you started you know like i mean i mean, I know lots of dops and they'll be like they have lights and they'll say hmm let's just try lighting turning lights off to explore what they get i'm wondering are you exploring to get there or did you have a clear 
sort of articulation of that vision before you started? Uh, so it's like a, when I start out my first self-portrait, I just mess around with the lighting, like you said, in Maya and move the lighting around, like this looks good. As I progressed, I've become more of a photographer, as you would call it. Like I've worked with a camera, I've got a light stick, and I actually do experiments with all my subjects, including myself, that portrait. And I'll just move the light around and just I'll take literally thousands of photographs until I get something similar. So I almost do the concepting stage in my photography now. And then I'll get something which I kind of like. Sometimes it's not like a one-to-one. Like I'm not just recreating a photograph. I'll be like, I like this lighting. I like this pose. I'm going to change the hue and colors to this. So I kind of like collage them all together and create the portrait out of it. But I have a very strong idea where I'm going to go through the photo references I take. I mean, the photo itself that you might take is its own has its own value, right? I mean, it's there, there is great art in photography. Um, oh, so, but you already have that, right? So you don't need to just reproduce the photo because you already have the photo, right? Like that's so you, I see why you're building on it. But in this case, what I'm hearing is that you are still trying to find your subject at the photographic level. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. I, the way I think of it is like this photorealism, whereas like if I was to copy a photo one to one and it just looks exactly like a photograph, that's photorealism. Uh, what I'm focusing on is hyperrealism. Hyperrealism just takes a little bit of uh, photorealism to the next level. It adds a little bit of poetry, a little bit of uh, emotion to it. Uh, the way I use, like to explain this is like when you take a photograph of a sunset, on your phone, you know, like in real life, it looks amazing. But on your phone, it looks terrible. Like it's like the contrasts don't match. Like nothing matches about it. But what do you do is you always play with your values, bump up the saturation, bump up things. You change the photographs so the emotion you feel from it matches reality, but that is no longer true. A true photograph is not exactly what it one to one anymore. You've changed it, and so I do that with my portraits now. So I try to go above the photorealism and add my own narration, my own storytelling, whether it's a change in the lighting, the contrast, saturations, color. There's a whole bunch of variables I use to amplify the story and narrative I'm trying to tell. So let's now get to the composition of what these uh, portraitures are showing me. And and the subjects look at me. They look at the audience. They invite an engaged kind of response because they're so directly staring at you from the, I was going to say the canvas, but, you know, from the image. Is that what defines for you the portraiture of it? At what point could you do a shot uh, a study of somebody where they're not looking at the camera and you'd still feel that it's a portrait as opposed to a slice of life or another kind of uh, dimension in uh, in art? I'd say it becomes a portrait when you can look at something and be like, I get a sense of who they are. Like eye contact isn't necessarily required. I mean, but you I do, do eye contact in almost all your pieces. Yeah, you I, I find it sort of the strongest source of connection because it's like uh since we're been babies like we've been looking at the human eyes we can it's a quick way to get someone's attention these portraits are like a cover of a book so it's like you have to tell as much as you can you have to capture the viewer's immediate attention eye contact is the strongest connection we have so i usually create the eye contact but it's not necessarily required to do with the portrait you can still have a portrait which is like 
Well, you know, it's like the way we express ourselves is sometimes through clothing. Clothing can identify who we are, our job professions, or and, and you take a lot of trouble with clothing in your pieces. Yeah, I, yeah, a lot. Of, sometimes I just have like like black t shirt on and focus mostly on the face. Sometimes I go overboard and like really express the the subjects through his, the clothing. Like Tony is a good example. Uh, in his portrait, he was wearing a jean jacket with uh, punk bands logos all over him because he's an avid lover of that type of music and that really showcases who he is and i thought that was explaining what the portrait was more than his eye contact with the viewer this his clothing really identified who he is your pieces as i say connect with this eye contact and and and, and invite me to engage but there are two other aspects I thought that was interesting about this. Firstly, they nearly all denote the sense that the person is not caught at a brief moment. They're caught nearly always within a sense, not I say caught, they're created or, or rendered with a sense that they're thinking. Like they, there is thought behind the eyes to speak in crude terms. These are not like just happy snaps of somebody in an instant or somebody just glancing they nearly all look like they're very thoughtful. Can you talk to that point? And am I misreading your work? No, no, no. You, you got it right on the nose on that. Uh, I mean, obviously, when I do the photo stages of things, it's very hard to actually get that uh, that natural glance. So usually they know the camera's looking at them. And so when I'm doing these photo shoots with them, I, I actually have a conversation with them and trying to get to know who they are during the photo stages. And so it's like I'm trying to, yeah, just capture the, that the soul of them, who they are, through that through that eye contact. But yeah, it's kind, of, yeah, it's kind of a it's a tricky one, I think, this one with the eye contact. And and we've discussed already emotion quite a bit, right? Like they clearly are, and they both emotionally connect with the viewer, but also you're trying to convey more than just you know the geography and the geometry of their faces. But they're nearly always, if not absolutely always, not expressing what I would call a, an overt emotion. They're not laughing. You're not. I mean, it would be quite possible to do a portrait where somebody is crying, laughing, like doing a very explicit uh, facial kind of uh, emotion. These are nearly to a T or contemplative. Yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll say so. Uh... I don't see any teeth anywhere, ever. The jade has uh, some teeth. Oh, okay. So, like, somebody actually asked me about that the other day. And I was like, yeah, I think I did model one set of teeth for one one portrait. Uh, Heather has uh, teeth. I, I apologize. Yeah, I don't know. I don't... You don't, you don't yeah, explore like con- those sort of broader emotions? Not so much. I mean, I like the contemplative stuff. I like to try and have that subtle approach because it's like having that broader emotion, it's kind of like you you've not only just got a subject, but you're trying to express that uh, a feeling, which it goes, it's like one sliver of the portrait. I usually find where it's more of a subtle, you get a more overall sense of who they are. I mean, I'm not saying I wouldn't explore it. I, I think it would be a good exploration piece, but I've not quite got there at this point. I guess you'd need, let's say for argument's sake, and obviously this is impossible because he's passed away, but let's say you had Robin Williams, somebody who's clearly identified with humor, then um, I guess my question is, you could see yourself possibly doing something where you felt inherent to their character is a broader emotion and that might come through in a future work. Is that right? Or you would? It's possible. The thing is, like, I also have to capture, like, 
through the photo references, I do need to capture an honest feeling. If I have somebody like laughing who's not generally laughing, you'll you'll get a sense of that. And I oh, absolutely. And and I, and we all know, like there are muscles, or not all know, but there are obviously there are muscles in the, around the eyes and stuff that can't be activated with a fake smile. And there's a great difference between a fake smile and a real smile. But um, I know you've also referenced uh, visually anyway, like the Mona Lisa, right? Which is one of the most enigmatic smiles in history. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. But okay. So, so you've talked about a little bit about taking quite a lot of photos, but I don't think we want to mislead people in thinking that you're using photogrammetry. There is no photogrammetry or scanning here, is there? No. I, if you think of my workflow, it's almost a similar workflow though. Like I do do, there's a, I, there's like a three-stage process in my photo shoots. The first stage, I'll do like an, almost like a T-pose where I'll have a light, a light straight on and I'll do photo references like maybe 50 to 100 all the way around the head. And then I'll create the model, almost like a, a scan, scan would, but I'll do it manually. And then I have a second photo shoot where I'll have a straight T-pose and I'll move the light around so I can see how the skin reacts to the light, see the poor details. And then I'll do a third photo shoot where they just kind of do different poses and I'll just play around in concept different steps and stages at that point. But yeah, it's what, not one-to-one. -one. What resolution um, are these photos that you're getting the photo detail in them, or the skin pore detail in them? Uh, I just got a, I boarded myself a Sony AR75, I think it is. And you get up to 9,000 pixels wide. So it's pretty decent resolution. And then I also just can move the camera closer. So I can get like a, like a full face would be like almost 9,000 pixels details. So I get quite a lot of good information from it. There are aspects of the face that are incredibly identifiable as an individual. Clearly, their eyes and the shape of their face and stuff. But there's got to be parts of like I don't know, the skin texture around the forehead or whatever that I wouldn't know if it was theirs or not. So, is there a sense of uh, that you needs to be exactly their skin pores, or is it just at some point you go, I need texture here, and and this is a texture I like? Yeah. So sometimes I yeah I do that. So there's there's certain parts of their face which you need a nail spot on and that's yeah. definitely the cheeks, the cheeks the lips and the nose uh the neck nobody really looks at it ears nobody really looks at it and then some of the forehead people don't really look at it. so if you actually make variations in those people don't really notice but if you do change the pores in the cheeks is people people can pick up on that I was wondering if we could talk also about the silhouette of somebody. I think most people think of uh, a human's identity as the hockey mask of their face, but the actual silhouette, quite literally, the outline of the shape of their head and everything else is is incredibly closely identified with the person. And, and I've seen that because I've seen faces of one person put on just an arbitrary skull because they just wanted to show me something. And it looked completely not like that person, even though the face was impeccable. There's, I mean, that the yeah, body I, language I matters. I remember when we met a couple of years ago, you mentioned that to me, and I actually started thinking about that quite a lot. And I, I, I totally agree with you. It's like silhouette is probably one of the biggest defining factors of who we are. It's like you can change, you can just like make a black silhouette. You can de you can determine exactly who it is by just looking at the, their outlines. So even though it's like all these skin details I talk about and how like you got to match poor details, really it's just like the form basic shapes and the silhouette is really all you need to ma uh, match. I mean, eye contact and the shape of the eyeballs, that's important, but it's like, 
I think, yeah, silhouette is a huge play in one of the uh, ways of capturing a subject. I don't think that you do this, but I'd be interested in your point of view. The thing that I find interesting about a cartoonist or a caricaturist is that they can pick up on qualities of a face that we seem to identify as being very Ian-ish, and then they accentuate them, which makes it look like Ian, when even though it's only just a bunch of pencils sort of sketches that shouldn't be enough information to give a, that a, opinion. Do you ever find that there are aspects that you kind of go, in this person's face, this is you know, what makes it look like a Chris, and, and does that change from different faces? Uh, yeah, I don't think I got a skill to uh, amplify certain aspects of things to determine what they are, because I kind of like look at everything as being an equal role. Like I see the shape of the nose, the shape of the lips, the shape of the ears. Each person is unique, but I can't. Uh, I feel like it's the whole thing is a like a consistency. I don't. I can't ex- like be like, oh, I'm going to have bigger nose than this one. No, no, I, I know you don't. I don't. You don't amplify them, but I'm guess I'm wondering. Do you like when you're trying to capture a person? Because there must be an interim version of many of these models that don't yet for you satisfy you that it looks like that person, right? Like, take anyone that we've been talking about, right? Like, uh, well, yeah, pick anyone, I guess. But like Richard, uh, David, your brother, anyone that you go, oh, now I've now I've got the nose right. It's David, kind of thing. Or is it just uh, a totality? I think it's just a total overall thing. I just I see it as. I, there are things which I notice that people are different, like there's certain elements of people's faces which are more, they stand out a little bit more, which I noticed, like uh, in one's portrait, he doesn't really have the, the glabella as much as like it protrudes a lot, a lot more. And then uh, some people have like, they don't have the earlobes, so it's kind of more attached to the the side of the head. There's like, there's things I pick up, and I'm like, oh, that's kind of unique and different. So I definitely make sure to include all that stuff. But I see, yeah. I see it as still as a whole. Okay, so you've got the photos, you're studying them, and you're manually modeling these faces. Talk, talk me through that workflow, if you could, just for, I'm just curious on your process. Uh, so basically, so I've got like a, I'll take through like, a, say, for example, 100 photos from all angles. I just create the T-pose character right off the bat, and I'll just try to match the photo references as close as possible, just making sure the silhouettes are all lined up, make sure the uh, anatomy is correct. And then at that point, then I'll put like a simple rig into it. Sometimes like there's a couple of joints and I'll repose it and then start re-sculpting it. And then, yeah, I just start texturing a light, looked at the lighting from that point on. But I still have a good reference of where I'm going to go with it. A few years ago, I remember us talking about using Mudbox and Maya. Is it the same basic tool set? Obviously, different versions of those softwares come out, but have you changed or evolved your tool set? Uh I mean, it's got better. It's basically the same workflow, Maya, Mudbox, V-Ray. Uh, I've learned tr- tricks within those programs, which has made my life a little bit easier. I uh, just like, yeah, it's, uh, it's like it's hard to, to, to tell you exactly what all the tricks are because there's like, I've picked up hundreds of them. I don't actually consciously be aware. Well, of I thought one of the tricks was you've been uh, aggressively using NVIDIA cards so that you can iterate more. And I was kind of, I don't know if this is true, but I saw you making some quote about just the level of iterations, the number of versions that you would do because you can, because the rendering is so fast. Um, uh, like I how much? My first couple of portraits I would do, I would have, it was like uh, when I'd render, I'd have to wait like over an hour just to see what the result is going to be. 
now the GPU rendering, it's literally almost instant. Sometimes it'll be like two minutes for a 6K K render. So the amount of iterations I can do is just like a thousands compared to a dozens or something like that. So with the more iterations I can do, the better I can, the better work I can do, I find. I find my work, my process is working backwards. So I render it, figure out what's wrong, fix it, render it again, figure out what's wrong, fix it. Rather than building up, like, okay, I'm gonna do this, build, do the nose, make the year better. I'm just fixing problems until there's no more problems I can see to fix. So how many iterations are we talking about? Well, it's it's kind of hard to determine that as well because it's like uh, GPU. You can do like live rendering, so it's like you can rotate around. So you're just constantly doing it, yeah. Yeah, it's like constantly. Sometimes I just work entirely in GPU as it's rendering, make changes, and just watch the updates on the fly. By the way, what sort of NVIDIA card are you using? Just out of curiosity, I got uh, two RTX six thousands. Okay, so some some good crunch there. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty fast, especially when you uh, when you don't have a character with hair, it goes pretty fast. Yeah, and then what resolution are these being rendered at? Like, uh, obviously, I've seen them in the web and also at conferences. But what's your like native resolution that you're coming out at? Uh, I usually finish about six thousand pixels by four thousand pixels, but when I'm working, it's about two thousand pixels. And for your completed pieces, do you then? just as a process, print them at all or professionally print them? Or do you only keep them in an electronic format? Like what's what, what happens when a piece is finished? You've finished, uh, we've used the example of your brother David a moment ago. So you finished a shot of David, obviously you probably share it with him, but from a process point of view, do you print these out? Do you frame them? Do you just keep them electronically? Usually it's just electronically, but I've, I've had shows, I had a show at Nonum Gallery a couple of years ago uh, where we printed all the portraits out. So it'd be like almost uh, like a meter by a meter. It like they were pretty huge, and we printed out like 25, 26 of them at the time. So we had a show. That was a, it was amazing just to see them live because it's like gives you a different feeling. It's almost like a painting where you can actually walk up and see the detail and go back rather than zooming in with your finger on the mouse. Uh, I've had other shows. I had a show in Paris, which I just got back from a few months ago, where they put, had them on big TV screens. And so you'll see some of the, uh, the anatomy ones being animated. So that was kind of a nice experience. I released uh, Kim Jong-ji's portraits where we, in I, I went to uh, Tokyo to release this one uh, with, with THU, where we printed some workout as well as having the TV screen next to it. You also did a book. Yeah, that's right. That was, uh, that was pretty intense. I was over uh, COVID, so we were basically all told to stay home for the year. So I was like, well, what am I going to do that year? So I just wrote a book about all of my ideas and philosophy about portraiture. It's, the, the book's not a technical book. It's not like this is how I build them. It's just like my thoughts of art history, thoughts of the digital medium, where things are going to go, and just how I see my work. So I just it was like a collection of all my talks I've ever given. I just put them all into one book. Yeah, one of those portraits that you did relatively recently, and you might discuss this, the subject actually passed away. I don't know if you could discuss that, but that must have given you a tremendous sense of responsibility dealing with having, I believe, the final portrait. Yeah, 
Yeah, that was uh, that was a difficult one. So I went to Trojan Horse was a unicorn event. Uh, this was in Portugal. Uh, this in this event, I met uh, Kim Jung Ji. He's a fantastic artist. He does like uh, huge scale drawings, but he does them live in front of you. And you can, he does them on stage in front of like an audience. Like his skills are just so remarkable. Uh, after he did a live drawing session on stage, I just ran up to him and said, "Hey, Kim Jung Ji, can I?" Do your portrait, and he knew who I was because like we've been around like events a, a bit, and he was super excited. So we set up a time to do a photo shoot the next day. I spent like maybe forty-five minutes just taking photo references of him, getting all the information I need, and then the event was over. I went home. He went home, and I think it was less than three or four days later he died. It was just insane. Like I couldn't believe like he just passed away so suddenly. And, but I was sitting on all these photo references, which he was super excited about his portrait, but I'm like, I felt like, the, why should I be the one to create the, his last portrait? Because it's like, I didn't really know him too well. I knew of his work pretty well, but I, it's not like I was really, like, uh, knew him personally on an emotional level. But so I kind of sat on it for a few months. I think I just sat on it for two months, determining whether I should even do it or not. But as I was going through the photo references, uh, there was a one photo reference which kind of stood out to me where he was pointing at the camera. And I remember him doing that in the, in the photo shoot. I was like, that's kind of weird. Like, what's like, <laughs> why would he be pointing at me? Like, I've, no, I've never had a subject point at the camera before. And I kind of dismissed it at the time. But when I went back and looked at the photo references again, it kind of like hit me differently. I was like, oh, he's not pointing at me. I feel like he's kind of pointing at all of us. And I felt like it was like, it was almost like a message, like, hey, he's done his job. Now it's time for you to do your job. Now, like time for you to pick up the brush and you do your, your work now. And so I felt like that was a compelling message. And if that was one of his messages he wanted to give out, I can't not do his portrait at this point. So I, I completed the portrait and released it. And I just kind of hoped he'd like to, he would have liked it. Yeah, it's quite a confronting portrait given that historical reference, um, because mm -hmm. he is so directly addressing us, not just with his eyes as we've discussed before, but like he's pointing right at me when I'm watching that picture, which, uh, yeah, but it's interesting your interpretation of that and it changes over time. Um, I, I can't, yeah, I can't imagine what that would feel like, but uh, did you get any feedback from family or anyone close to him? Uh, I gave it to uh, his really good friend, uh, Hanjin Kim. I also did a portrait of him as well. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, they loved it. They were pretty excited about it. Uh, yeah, I, I think I I got the impression that he was, he was honored that I did it for him and his family. Well, yeah, it's a very uh, significant piece and, and a beautiful portraiture. Hey, um, so what's next for you? What, what, what are you working on at the moment? Is it more along any particular lines or are you just exploring? Uh, where are you at at the moment? So I got, uh, I'm going to do one more portrait, like a still portrait. I got to do uh, my niece. So I've, I've told myself with my nieces and nephews, I'll do them every six years. So I've done my father, I did my nephew age six. And so when he turns 12, I'll do him again. When he turns 18, I'll do him again and for as long as I can. And I'll do it for my niece. So she's turning uh, seven in a couple months. So I've got to do her portrait pretty soon before she turns seven. So she's next. 
And then after that, I'm really going to do an attempt at, at a, like an animated portrait. That's going to be a, a really interesting challenge, and I look forward to seeing uh, how that comes out. I love the idea of doing them every six years. I'm a huge fan of that 7-Up documentary that was done in the UK, um, and for the, exactly the reason that you'd imagine, which I just love seeing their faces and how they evolve. And to what I was referring to earlier, really, the sameness of the person, the the presence of their character and who identify with them as being, though their faces change dramatically. I think it's really fascinating to see how you do that because you'll be really seeing, okay, is this the same? Well, it is the same person, but like, is the is that coming through? And if it is, what is it that's making that the same person when they're on the either side of, uh, say, puberty, which would be just a huge transition? So yeah, yeah. fascinating stuff. Yeah, I think I think uh, Seven Up was one of my things which inspired me to do the uh, every. Six years. I thought six yeah. years would be because I thought six is a good age, 12, and then 18, 24, 30, 30. I thought those are kind of better ages, but yeah, I was inspired by that show. Yeah, it's uh, human faces are infinitely fascinating, and uh, and your work is uh, incredibly vivid, and uh, I applaud it so much. So, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us about it. Yeah, no problem. Thank you so much. Well, thanks so much, Ian, for taking the time to chat with Mike. It was great to hear some of the details behind the amazing portraits that you do. And to those of you listening, thanks for doing so. We really appreciate your support of what we do here at Effects Guide. Until next time, for Mike Seymour, I'm John Montgomery. Thanks for listening. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.